All right, good morning, everyone. So let's, uh, let's begin. So we're going to focus, Amir Hashem, probably over the next two classes or so, on the Naharos, on the rivers. So remember again, as I've mentioned before, in Perak Shira, you have a little bit of overlap. For example, water is a good example of this. Water, we actually have three different times that water is brought up in the context of Perak Shira. We have the Yamim, which we often translate as the seas, the Ma'ayanos, which we translate as the wellsprings, and then the Naharos, which are the rivers. So interestingly enough, although it's all water, and although there is some level of overlap in the water messaging, at the end of the day, as we begin to see from Parakshira, each and every part of nature, sorry, each and every part of nature does contain its own unique message. As such, they're broken up in Parakshira. So let's begin. This actually, I think, is, is quite amazing. So, the, so Parakshira says, Parak Aleph, Naharos Omrim. The rivers say, Naharos Imchaochaf, Yachat Harim Yiraninu. Literally translated, again, a Pasuk from Tehillim, Naharos Imchaochaf, the rivers will clap their hands, Yachat Harim Yiraninu. The mountains will exult, or will celebrate, will sing praise together. So we're not so concerned right now with the mountains. We're much more focused ultimately again over here on the rivers. And of course, the question that comes up when you look at this Pasuk is, I'm sorry? I'm sorry? I just, I just didn't hear. I said, how do rivers clap? How do rivers clap? Okay, so we understand in general... Everything, remember, everything that we see in Parakshira is anthropomorphic, right? Remember, again, nature is not actually doing any of these things that, that, the, that Parakshira ascribes to them. The same way that the Ribano Shal Olam does not have a Yad HaChazaka, right? The Kaddish Baruch Hu doesn't have a hand, right? In fact, again, the Rambam brings down one of the Ikari Imuna. It's really the Ribano Shalom has no physical form. Yet the Torah very often ascribes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu physical realities. We know it's anthropomorphic because Dibra Torah Kilashon B'nai Adam, the way for us to understand strength. When you talk to me about strength and you tell me a strong hand, I can appreciate that because I understand that imagery. That imagery. So correct. How do rivers clap? But again, we, we know enough already to know that this is all metaphorical. But good. What else? Oh, so this is interesting. Remember, it's written in the future tense. Excellent. That ultimately the rivers will clap their hands. Good. When? When will they? Good. What else? Clapping hands seems to give a connotation of what emotional state? Joy. Happiness. So then the fundamental question we're really going to focus on over here is, why are the rivers happy? Right? What, 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 what is it exactly that is making the rivers... So, and again, the rest of the Pasuk, that's why the rest of the Pasuk flows as well. The, the Naharos clap their hands, and Yachat Harim Iraninu, and the mountains will exult. What right? will give Rina, will give praise. Will also be Basimcha. So what's all the simcha about? Where, 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 is, where is all of the joy? So first of all, let's address the tense issue. So n- not the tense issue, but the issue of tense, right? And why does it say they, they will clap? So again, I'm not giving you context in this because we're, it's not a Tehillim shir, but in Pasuk, in Parak Ches, in this chapter, particular chapter in Tehillim, remember, take one step back. The, if, there's a difference between saying Tehillim and learning Tehillim. What's the difference? 
Right, when you say it, you don't really even have to understand what you're saying. This is the power of Tillim. The power of Tillim is even if I don't understand one word that I'm saying, there's something cathartic that occurs when a Jew says Tillim. That is the power of David Amalek's words. Conversely, when you're learning Tillim, obviously you want to understand what it is that you're saying. So when you learn Sefer Tillim, you discover something absolutely amazing, which is every capital has a context. Even though when we read Tillim, it sounds beautiful, it sounds wonderful. Many times we don't even understand the translation of all of the words because it's poetry. And poetry sometimes is a bit more difficult to translate than just the regular Pasuk. But also to fully appreciate what David HaMelech is trying to convey is to understand the context of the capital. Every capital has a subject. And every capital has a theme. And at least the ones offered directly by, by David HaMelech fit into a direct Context, right? There's something historical that'll happen. The context of Kapitel Tzadikhas happens to be Yimosa Mashiach, Messianic Redemption. <clears throat> so, on the most basic level, the idea of Naharos Yimcha Uchaf Yachad Harim Yiraninu is a reference to Yimosa Mashiach. That when Mashiach comes, there is going to be such a universal sense of simcha, such universal sense of joy, that not only will mankind rejoice, and I say mankind because remember, the simcha of the Messianic era is not only experienced by the Jewish people. The simcha of the Messianic era is experienced by everyone. But not only is that simcha experienced by mankind, but that simcha ultimately is experienced by the natural world as well. Quite incredible. But again, what we're going to, f- so now we took care of the issue of tense. We understand why it's phrased in the future. When will the rivers clap? The rivers will clap their hand when Mashiach comes, heralding the arrival of the Melech HaMashiach. But let's focus now a little bit on the notion of Simcha. So take a look. Take a look at number three. So the Metsudas David writes as follows. The Metsudas David writes, Simcha Ochaf, Yaku Kaf El Kaf. They will go ahead and literally clap their hands together. Like those who are besimcha. See, the Metsudas David is spelling it out. The, the clapping of hands represents simcha, represents joy. What, what is malitza? A metaphor. Right? This is a metaphor. Lahoros alrof hasimcha. So obviously, as was mentioned before, of course, the rivers, right, are not actually clapping their hands, but rather the clapping of hands is a metaphor for intense joy. Rov simcha. Deben Ezra number four. Hatam. So again, hatam ki adam shem besvinos hayam yaranu. So it's just an aside. I've just put this on the sheet just to. It's interesting to see, but not really part of our core theme. The Eben Ezra, conversely, on the different than the Mesudas David and even different than the Medrash, is discussing the idea that the clapping is actually not being done by the rivers. Just like the Rina, the exulting, is not being done by the mountains. Rather, who is the clapping being done by? Who ultimately, again, is the Rina being, being, being stated by? It's by people. The people who travel on the seas will go ahead and clap. The people who climb the mountains will engage in arena. Okay, so just it, it, it's just an interesting, again, not our topic for now, but I'm just pointing out that the Eben Ezra, everyone agrees that this is a reference to the Messianic era. There's just an interesting nuance to Machlokes as to how the Simcha of the Messianic era will ultimately prevail in the world. According to the Matsudas David, it's a Simcha that's palpably felt not just by man, 
but by nature as well. According to the Eben Ezra, no, no, no. It's a metaphor for how man is going to celebrate. Nature is not going to celebrate. Man will celebrate. Okay, look at the Medrash number five, then we'll tie this all together. So the Medrash writes, So interestingly enough, the Medrash seems to have a little bit of a hybrid model. Who's going to celebrate? It's going to be the rivers and the mountains. But why will the rivers and mountains celebrate? What does the Medrash say? What does that mean? What does that mean? They're happy for, right. They're happy for Klal Yisrael. So, so it's a little bit of a hybrid model. So whereas you have the Mitzudas David saying that, no, 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 in the, when Mashiach comes, it's nature that's celebrating. The Ebenezer is saying when Mashiach comes, it's people that's celebrating. The Medrash says when Mashiach comes, it's so beautiful, Mashiach comes, Nature celebrates for the people. And specifically, again, which people? Which people? Klav Yisrael. You know, if, even before we go on, what, what does this mean that nature celebrates for Klav Yisrael? How, how, do you, how do you understand that? So it could be maybe the natural world does things for Klav Yisrael's benefit. Like going back, we've learned this before, like it was created to do beautiful, beautiful. What else? Oh, so I think, so, so excellent. Meaning, you know, at the end of the day, we have historical memory, right? So we, we, know, we know what has happened to our people over the last thousands of years. But the truth is, you know, one of the great challenges, for example, we have on Tisha B'Av. What's the great challenge of Tisha B'Av? Right? It's, it's difficult to mourn for something you never knew, right? And you've never seen. Even, even you see this now, it's very interesting. I mentioned this in a different share I was giving. There's a, there's a fascinating term now that's used in the academic world called Holocaust fatigue. And Holocaust fatigue is that people are just tired of talking about the Holocaust, which is, which is just amazing because it's less than a century ago. It's less than a century ago. There are still survivors who are still, who are still alive. But the way, the way memory works is as we go on, things are pushed to the recess. So we have difficult. So we, do we all know the base Hamidrash was destroyed? Of course, the first one, the second one. More than a million Jews were slaughtered during the fall of the second base Hamikdash. We have kinos that speak about to get into Vudzoran, Rabbi Tabachim, and what he was the major general of Nebuchadnezzar and what he did specifically to children during the Chorban Bayefushim. We have all of this. We have all of this. Just like we have historical accounts what happened in the Crusades. We have historical accounts what happened in the pogroms. You, you could read anything and everything. But at the end of the day, it's history. It's history. And when things are history, sometimes you have difficulty connecting to it. But it's amazing because the natural world has seen everything. Right? The natu- it's the same sky. It's the same earth. It's the same rivers. It's the same mountains that were here during Chorban Bayes Rishon, Chorban Bayes Sheni, the Chalmaniki Maskers, the Agas, everything, everything. They've seen everything. So Mashiach comes... And Kral Yisrael is, is put on the pedestal in which it deserves to be. And when Mashiach comes and the historical wrongs are righted by the Ribbono Shal Olam, who will rejoice most? That which has had a seat to see everything that has occurred over the last number of thousands of years. So the Medrash says, Bisim Chasun Shal Yisrael, nature will rejoice. But nature is not really rejoicing for itself. I don't know. I don't know that the natural world, you know, this is actually, I think we've mentioned this before. 
in general, there's incredible machlokes about what's going to happen in the Messianic era. Right? What, what, what happens? Is it olam kimin hagol noheg? Is it the world will just run as it's always run? Or there's an opinion in the Gemara that says, no, the natural world will be fundamentally upended. In fact, the Gemara says, quotes an opinion that says, you'll plant, a, you'll plant grain and loaves of bread will grow from, will grow from the earth which is incredible, which tells that all of the effort that we currently engage in order to produce food will no longer be part, will no longer be necessary as part of the Messianic era. Incredible. So which one is right? That's the goal. But so whether nature changes or nature stays the same, the Medrash understands that nature's simcha is for Klal Yisrael. Is for Klal Yisrael. Abraham Nechemya b'shlosha makomos ne'emar davar zeh kol ha'amim tiku kaf kaf al kapisim chasin shle Yisrael lukaf mam shogen. So the Medrash goes on to explain why you find throughout Tanakh different different sources or different episodes of clapping, and clapping is almost always somehow used as a reference for the simcha of Klal Yisrael. So again, we see over here the Mitzudas David telling us it's the simcha of nature. Eben Ezra, it's the simcha of man. Medrash synthesis, hybrid approach. It is nature celebrating for man. The Mashiach comes, nature will celebrate for Klav Yisrael. So, it's interesting that what this capital is telling us is, it tells us when the rivers will achieve joy. Right? So apparently, again, the rivers have to wait for what in order to be in a state of simcha? Mashiach. Right, that's what I'm saying. Naharo simchalchav. When will the rivers clap with joy? They will clap with joy when Mashiach comes. That's what I thought, which just seems to indicate to us that apparently the rivers don't have that much simcha now or don't have any simcha. Right, remember again, as was pointed out, it's future tense. It's future tense. They will find joy. So when I saw this particular piece in Parakshir, it got me thinking a little bit that the rivers are very lucky. Right, why, why are the rivers lucky? What do you think? You're, you're too young, so you don't fully... Yes. Because what? So first of all, they're for Shobi Rabbi Mashiach, which, which is incredible. Incredible, right? What else? What do the rivers know? I'm sorry? They believe there'll be a Mashiach. True, true. I'm sorry? Say that once more. See, the rivers know that they are guaranteed happiness. This, this, is an, this is an incredible idea. They know that they will be happy. Granted, that happiness will come, that happiness will come at, cer- at, at a certain point in time, but they know for sure that there will be simcha. And that is such an incredible thing because most people go through life and I think most people are not really happy. Most of you are not really happy. And, and that's for a variety of different reasons. It's because I think on a most basic level, people don't really understand what actual simcha is. What, what, what is happiness? So what ends up happening is in life is that people often hinge their happiness on different things. I will be happy when, right? Or I will be happy if. And usually you finish that sentence in different ways, in different stages 
in life, right? So as a child, I will be happy when school is over, right? As a young adult, I'll be happy when I find a shidduch, when I have a career, when I have this. And generally, that we, we complete, and as you get older, I'll be happy when I make X amount of money. I'll be happy when I have my own house. I'll be happy when I have this. And generally, the, 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 the sentence structure changes, but the sentiment often remains the same. I'll be happy when. And for many people, happiness often remains elusive throughout the entirety of, of life. It's interesting to note that here, now again, when it comes, now you can say the same thing about the rivers. The rivers also have a sentence like that. The rivers will be happy when Mashiach comes. So that works fine for nature. That works fine for nature because I don't know if it really makes a big difference in the quality of life of a river, if it's happy or not. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a better river, a more accomplished river, a better well-adjusted river. Bipashtas, happiness factor in a river's life, I don't imagine, moves the river's accomplishment needle all that much. But for us, it sparks a very important conversation, which is how do you find happiness in life? And, and this, is, this is incredibly important. Because if you don't have the right definition, if you don't have the right real definition for simcha, you can go through life never finding. So let, let's, let's take a step back from the sources for just a moment. And if I were to ask you, how do you find simcha in life? What would you say? Gratitude. Gratitude. Good. So explain. Excellent. Meaning, on a most basic level, the way most of us are programmed, and I don't know why the Ribbon Shalom made us this way, but it just seems to be, it's like, it's like the default setting in life. So the default setting on the human persona, the default setting is that I focus on what I lack. I focus on what I lack. That, that just for whatever, for whatever the reason, right? If you go ahead and you ask most people, what are you missing in life? I mean, Baruch Hashem, you're, you're, you're still young. So hopefully, hopefully you haven't fallen into this trap. But if you ask most people what they're missing in life, they can usually rattle that off pretty quickly. If you ask most people what they're thankful for, it takes a little bit more time to think about, to compile that list. Just for whatever the reason, we're often more drawn to what's absent than what's present. So good, simcha could come from a sense of gratitude. When you recognize what you have in life, even though you're missing something. And again, I, I, I want to be clear, you know, gratitude, gratitude doesn't mean ignoring the things that are broken, right? Do you ever have a friend who came to you with a problem, talking to you about a problem, and sometimes you listen, and, and you're t what are you tempted to say to the person? I'm sorry? Did you say grow up? Yeah. Okay. Don't come to Pessy for advice if a problem. Okay, good. All right, good. But, but let, let's go with that for just a second. Yeah, maybe not in those words, but sometimes what you're tempted to say to the person is, really? Really? That's the problem? That, that's your problem? That, that, that's really... Let me tell you about problems. Let me tell you about challenges. That's nothing. Now, should you ever say that to someone who's having a problem? No. no. Why? Because remember, remember, chances are whatever you're going through in life, there's always someone who has a bigger crisis, right? No matter what your problem, right? There's always children starving in Africa as the famous refrain grows, right? right? There, there's, there's always someone with something bigger than you. 
But again, we also know that just because there's someone with a bigger problem than mine doesn't, mind, doesn't mean that my problem is not significant, right? I know, of, co- of course I know. In any given moment, there is always someone with a bigger challenge than mine, of course. But at the end of the day, my challenge is still my challenge. So the fact that on the cosmic scale, it's not such a big deal, that's fine, and I can even recognize that. So the reason I mention this is because sometimes we think that if you really have gratitude, so your hakara satoa for the things you have should mute overshadow and eclipse all the things that are broken. But that's not true. That's not true. What it just does is it gives you proper perspective. So good. So number one way to find simcha in life is that of gratitude. Good. What else? How else can you find simcha? I'm sorry? Did you say meaning? Finding meaning in life. Excellent. Excellent. This is incredibly important and we're going to discuss this the first thing we have to do is define what simcha is not. What, simcha, what, 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 what is simcha not? I know it's not good English, but you understand. What is simcha not? A perpetual feeling of happiness. This is incredibly important. And this also is something that derails people. Why isn't the definition of simcha a perpetual feeling of happiness? So first of all, run out, but even, but even more fundamental than that. It's not possible. It's not possible. No, unless you're heavily medicated. No one, no one, and even then, by the way, even then, even then it runs out. No one lives in a perpetual state of joy. I, I, we're going we're to make distinctions over here between simcha and joy or even simcha and happiness. Right? So often we think about this concept of simcha as like an elated feeling of joy. Now, first of all, that can't even be the definition. Why? Because there are times where that type of joy is prohibited. Right? Tisha B'Av am allowed to have that kind of joy. And Shiva Chas Hashem Rechman Atzalo Aleinu. I'm supposed to have that level of joy. So there are times when that type of joyful happiness are prohibited. So good. So finding meaning in life absolutely could go ahead and lead me on a derech to simcha. Good. Any other ideas? Any other thoughts? How do you find happiness in life? Or, or how do we find... I'm going to use, Actually, we're going to use the word simcha for now because we're going to make a distinction between happiness and simcha in just a little. So we've got gratitude. We've got gratitude. We've got meaning. Any other thoughts? So interesting. Very interesting idea. Realizing that we have everything we need. What do you mean by that? Good, and not even necessary just for that moment, necessary for life. This, by the way, is probably one of the hardest lessons to internalize. Right? That I actually have everything I need, even if I don't have everything I want. And that's one of the greatest challenges in life. I have everything I need, even if I don't have everything I want. Now, the, what's, what's the intriguing part about that lesson? Or, or about that statement? Words, like, what's, what, what's the challenge in that statement? So first of all, we don't always know what we need. Good. Excellent. What else? I'm sorry? We want things. We want things. Hey, so, words, so like, this is the interesting part about this. Like, so what does that mean? If I have X, am I just supposed to remain content with X? 
and not try to also gain X plus Y? What about the fact of the idea that HaKadosh Baruch Hu even says you could work hard and you could have more. So th- this, this tension in life is often one that it doesn't really have resolution. This is, this is something we all struggle with in different ways. But if we just kind of zoom out of the specific just moment, focus on the principle, then maybe Simcha comes from the fact that everything in life I need to be successful, I already possess. I already possess. You know, this is one of the most incredible concepts that we have in Yiddishkeit, which is the Ribono Shal Olam pre-programs us with every trait and every koach that we need in order to be successful now. Sometimes I have to fine-tune those things, right? So remember, again, it's no different than an athlete who may have ability, but if you don't go ahead and sharpen the ability, it doesn't transform into anything, right? You see this, like certain people are born with certain innate, innate talents and kokos, but you still have to sharpen them. You still have to do something with them. So maybe simcha comes from the fact that I know anything and everything I need to be successful, I already have. Which means that when I meet a challenge, when I meet a challenge, I need not to be overwhelmed by that challenge. Because at the end of the day, whatever tools I need to somehow deal with that challenge, I already possess. They're, they're, they're in me. I may know about them, may not know about them. I may have sharpened them, may not have sharpened them. But whatever I need to meet the challenge, it is already there. Good. That's the source of simcha. So we've got hakara satov, gratitude. We have meaning. We have recognition that whatever I need, any tools I need to be successful in life, I already possess. Which, by the way, you understand how, what a profound, nuanced idea that is. Because often, we don't think about ourselves that way. I think many times the way we think about ourselves is, I'm a blank slate, which, which is good. Good to be a blank slate. I'm a blank slate. And now my job in life is to acquire the necessary tools in order to be successful. In fact, that's not really true. All the tools are already there. They're already embedded inside of me. It's already there. My avoda in life is to try to actualize them and bring them out. And understand, that's not just semantics. That, that yields a, a profound nafkamina, a profound practical difference between when I encounter a challenge, is it that now I have to find a brand new skill set that's external to me in order to meet this challenge? Or no, no, no. Anything I need, I, I already have. I don't know where it is necessarily. I don't know how to access it yet necessarily. I don't know how to fine tune it. But what I do know is it's there. And that, by the way, is such an incredible source of chizik. Because knowing that anything I need to be successful in life is, or, is already programmed in me, I just have to sharpen it, find it, activate it, gives a person an incredible sense of chizik in me, even in the face of overwhelming adversity. Good. Any other thoughts? Simcha. Giving to other people. Giving to other people. Always a good one. Or living a life beyond yourself. That sometimes, again, you know, when a person lives too much in their own head, right? When, when my life is just all about me. That's why you, you see this, by the way, it's an incredible thing. You see this by people who are dealing with overwhelming life adversity, overwhelming life adversity. One of the most therapeutic things that they are able to do is to be involved in chesed, to give to someone else, which sometimes sounds strange, because the person who's doing the chesed is the person themselves who needs so much help in life. 
but somehow by deflecting the attention off yourself, you're almost able to step out of yourself a little bit and see things in a much larger picture. Excellent. Good. Any other thoughts? Other ideas for happiness? Yes. It, meaning what? Beautiful. Living a goal-oriented existence. Great, great. Which, which, of course, overlaps with meaning also a little bit. That could be a subdivision of meaning, but setting goals for yourself, right? Setting goals, reaching those. These are, I just want to point out, these are all incredibly important things. And you're all young, Baruch Hashem. So if you actually begin to live life with these ideas, you, you will lead very very simchadic lives. So setting goals and reaching those, we all know this from our personal lives. When you set a personal goal for yourself and you reach that goal, there's an incredible sense of joy. That joy doesn't mean I have no more problems. That joy just means I feel a sense of accomplishment. Or maybe say a little bit different, simcha comes from living an accomplished life. So there's a meaningful life and there's an accomplished life. Excellent. What else? Say that again. Working hard, right? This idea of knowing, seeing, is it, is it working hard? What, what is it? Let's, let's think. What is it about working hard that gives simcha? Good. So when you feel like you've done something, in order, this is important because, well, no, I'll tell you what. What's there seen working hard and accomplishing? Right. So in other words, Accomplish means I, I, I'm going to uh, accomplish means I'm, I'm going to finish giving you this entire source sheet. That's my, uh, that's my intended accomplishment. But let's say I don't get through all of it, hypothetically. But I said, so again, I haven't accomplished my task, but have I worked hard? I feel like I've worked hard. So this, this, by the way, this is incredibly important because remember, this goes to another core concept, which is lo alecha hamalocha ligmar See, the da- see, you're 100% right. There is simcha in accomplishment. The danger of linking simcha to accomplishment is if you don't cross the finish line. Right. So this is where the hard work comes in. So we, 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 can, we can collapse a lot of these things into each other. So maybe it's the hard work involved in working to accomplish something. The accomplishment of is when you cross a finish line in life, whatever that finish line is, there's an incredible sense of joy in, in, in reaching that, in reaching that finish line. An incredible sense of joy in reaching that finish line. But the truth is the Jew also understands that there's incredible joy in knowing that I'm working hard towards to get towards getting that finish line. Because as we get older and we go through life a little bit more, we recognize that very often in life, the only thing I actually control is starting the race. Rarely do I control the ability to finish it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I do, but more often than not, the only avoda I could do is keep running, keep doing, keep going. So simcha comes, of course, from the accomplishment, but even before I accomplish the notion that I'm engaging in avoda, I'm engaging in hard work, which again, also collapses back into meaning, because again, it means I'm doing something with my life. Good, what else? Yes. Beautiful. There's, there's a simcha. And again, I think that's also like another subdivision of meaning. I'm a Jew. 
Uh, and to, to be a Jew is such a privilege. There's a privilege in just that identity, right? Remember, again, if you think about this in just a moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have chosen to birth your neshama into any family, into any place, into any whatever. Why is it that I was chosen to be, to, to be part of Klal Yisrael? Chosen to be part of Klal Yisrael. There, there's something so dramatically amazing about that to be birthed into a people of destiny, to be part of the most magnificent nation on the face of the earth, to be, to be part of a nation that enjoys a unique relationship with Hashem. Remember again, the Jews have not cornered the market on God. The Roshon belongs to humanity, and humanity belongs to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That being said, there is a unique relationship that Am Yisrael enjoys with Ribbon HaSha'olam. There is Simcha, which is, which is interesting because everything we've been describing up until now, Simcha is a result of what? Something you do. Versus what was just suggested, Simcha is a result of? Something you are. Something you are. So excellent, right? Sometimes it's just a sense of simcha and just a recognition of almost like a birth identity. I, I've been given this identity. Good, excellent. What else? I was going to say similar that, that we're a Jew and also our value, like our potential, what we could be just looking Beautiful. So embedded, so right, the transition then from simcha with, of who you are to simcha of what you can be because of who I am. That, that bespeaks the incredible potential I have, which again, collapses into the other categories as well. Any other thoughts? Yes? Accepting the things that aren't perfect. Oh, excellent, 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 excellent. Accepting the things that aren't perfect. Right? This, this is an incredible, incredible yisod in life. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. What, 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 explain. What are you accepting things that aren't perfect? Meaning what? But what? Do I accept all things that aren't perfect? Well, no, but the things you can't change. Oh, so, so I don't know if any of you are familiar with the serenity prayer. With the serenity prayer? I'm sorry? Connection? Correct. Excellent. Excellent. Right? So in, uh, good. Right? So in, in, in the 12-step program, which is an incredible program meant to allow people to overcome addiction, there's this concept called the serenity prayer, which essentially says, Lord, give me the, I forgot the exact Lashon, but it's give me the power to accept, to change the things that I can and to accept the things that I can't. Something like that. You'll Google it. But, but, but this idea of the ability to accept things which aren't perfect. Now, you have to be careful with this because sometimes when people accept things that aren't perfect, that gives people a license to what? Right, to settle for mediocrity. So this is incredibly important. And there is, there is nothing worse in life than settling for mediocrity. You know, if I were to ask you, what's the worst Avera in the world? The worst Avera. So you could, I'm sure, come up with a list. I don't know. Gideh Araya, Sheikhus Damim, Avodah Zara, Chilul Shabbos, whatever it might be. The truth is, those are all Averas and all really bad. I'm going to go on record as saying, all really bad. But... If you think about it, like from a humanistic perspective, like from a personal growth perspective, those are all episodic averos, right? So a person, in person, in person, worst of all the zara. There's an act I did. The real worst avera, from a personal perspective, is settling for mediocrity, because when you settle for mediocrity, 
it erodes everything. If I worship Avodazara, one of the worst Averis, can you do tshuva for worshiping Avodazara? Yeah. yeah, absolutely you can. You could do Averis, you could do tshuva for, for, for anything. You know, how that tshuva looks and what it requires, of course, is a discussion. But when you settle for mediocrity, it's like you fundamentally pull the rug from underneath yourself. So when we say accepting the imperfections of life, you have to be very, yes, that is a true statement. There is simcha. There are some people, there are some people who could tell you everything that is wrong with everything, right? And again, they constantly are focusing and perseverating on all the stuff that's broken. And some stuff in life that's broken, this goes back to what we spoke about in Parakshira by the Aretz, as much as the Kaddish Baruch who creates imperfection, so as to allow us to partner with him to fix things, certain things aren't fixed. Certain things aren't fixed. By the way, is, let, me ask, let me ask this fundamental question. Is everything in life that's broken fixable? No, give me an example of something that's not fixable. I'm sorry? Someone dies. Someone dies. Although even there, even there, is that technically fixable? I mean, not by me, but they'll be trias amazing. So I'll give you an example. This is actually like a very dramatic example. Oh, so that's what you would think, except for the stuff that's not fixable. So now, wow, well, I'll give you an example. <laughs> a very simple example. The Gemara says, the Gemara says, a person engages in adultery and births a mamzer. So in fact, the Gemara Masechus Brachas says, Shalom Alech says, Mu'uvas lo yucha liskon. Something that is crooked, something that is bent, cannot be straightened out. So the Gemara says, because the Gemara is very bothered by that. Everything is fixable. No, not true. Some mistakes you make in life carry with them eternal repercussions. So a man and woman engage in an illicit relationship and have a mamzer, right? Ultimately, again, that's it. That's like that. that. Now, again, could the man do tshuva for his act? Yeah. yeah. Could the woman do tshuva for her act? Of course. But is it fixable? Can, can you undo that which was done? No. No, there, there is a result which cannot be undone. So the reason I'm pointing this out to is because we always want to believe that anything I do can be undone. And on a chuva level, on a personal level, if what I've done is just between me and the Ribbon Shal Olam, it's possible, it's possible that you can undo it. But sometimes in life, I do things, I don't even mean the extreme example of like the Mamzevas, but sometimes in life, I do things and my actions create a little bit of a chain reaction. And I'm sorry? Lashonara is a great example of that, right? So I could do chill for speaking Lashonara. Can I reverse it? Can I reverse it? I mean, that's the severity of Lashonara. You can never really know if you could reverse it or not. You can never really know. So this interesting... So, yes, so let, let's come back. So there's a simcha that comes from the knowledge. There's a simcha that comes from the knowledge that I just have to accept certain things as they are. They're broken... They're irreparable and I have to move on. Now, when you take that mindset versus when you try to fix something, therein lies the great challenge of life. Because too often in life, people see something that looks broken and they say, oh, irreparable, can't fix it, move on to the next thing. When in fact, they have the koach to fix it. But yes, if there are certain things in life, just like there are certain relationships that you can't rehabilitate. Certain things that are just, why there's certain relationships that you can't rehabilitate? Why? Because remember, in order for a relationship to be healthy and thriving, it requires two people. 
Sometimes the other person is not interested. It's unfortunately, where even in families, you can have a person who desires to have a good relationship with a parent or with a sibling. But if the other person doesn't want it, you could be the greatest tzaddikis in the world. And you could be a vatran or a vatranit, right? And you could do anything and everything, but you can't fix it. You can't fix it. And so there are people who spend their lives obsessed with these broken relationships and upset about it. And meanwhile, you have to accept it. Because if you obsess about it and you can't do anything about it, that erodes your simcha. Good. Any other ideas? Yes. To who? Beautiful. Connections and relationships. Incredibly important. Incredibly important. The notion of... Look, remember, what does Chadash Baruch Hu say? When one of the first things that Chadash Baruch Hu says about Adam. Actually, the first thing that he says about Adam was... Lotov heyos ha'adam levado. Lotov heyos ha'adam levado. It is not good for man to be alone. That is not just simply a statement about marriage. That is a statement about the fact that human beings are social beings. As I learn every time I come into this class. Baruch Hashem. <laughs> right? Human beings are social. And there, there's, and Baruch created us, created us that way. He wants us to be that way. But he wants us to form relationships. He wants us there to be interdependency. So when you don't have connection in life, that arose your state of simcha. I just want to point out, when a Baruch doesn't just say, it's nice to have friends. It's a good thing to have friends. It's a good thing to have relationships. Baruch says much stronger, it's not good for a person to be alone. When a Baruch says it's not good for something to occur, just like when a Baruch creates something that should be sustained forever, it says, tov. tov is that word where Kaddish Baruch says, this is necessary for, universe, for, the, for the fabric of the universe. When Rav Baruch Hu says, Lotov, Lotov means it fundamentally undermines the universal fabric if man becomes a solitary being. Man needs relationships. Excellent, good. Any other thoughts? All right, I think we've exhausted the, uh, the entire Simchas, but, but all correct. So, by the way, what, what do you see from this? So we just spent probably 30 minutes, right, going through definitions of Simcha. What does that tell you? That there are a lot of different ways to get there. Excellent. What else does it tell you? Say that once more. Right. That if you notice, by the way, no one said a nice house. Which, which again, that, that's an incredible accomplishment to all of you because I think if you would pose that question outside of the, of, of, of the confines of a, a Lemude Kodesh classroom, I think people would come up with a lot of different things. So, but it's interesting to see that none of it is Gashmias, but you know, here's the reality. We're talking in a classroom, but yet when you get out of the classroom and you get into the world, so many people translate Simcha into Gashmias, or I should say, they think that Gashmias is going to give us Simcha. Gashmias could give you pleasure, definitely. It could give you joy. It could be, it could be very enjoyable, but it will not yield Simcha. What else does it teach you? Yes. So there's no. So, so the question is, is that simcha or is that just necessary to function? I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. In the beginning of Parashas Bichukosai, 
So the Torah says, you're familiar with it. If you walk in my ways, listen to the mitzvahs. What does the Torah then go on to discuss? Gashmius. Gashmius. I'll give you rain, I'll give you sheep, I'll give you anything and everything. So the Arachayim HaKadosh comments on that. He says, I don't understand. Don't we believe that Schar Mitzvah Baha'i Al-Maleka? It's so strange, right? Is, is there a word for Mitzvahs in this world? I mean, it's a machlokas. But one thing is clear, which is, I would have thought that when the Torah is speaking about reward, especially for Mitzvahs, it would have framed it in a more Ruchni fashion. Yet every single thing that's spoken about in Parashas Bichu Kosai is all, almost all Gashmi. So the Arachaim says something amazing. He says, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises us Gashmius, Gashmius ultimately is there to facilitate our Ruchnius. What does this mean? On a very simple level, most of us, most of us, if you don't have food to eat, clothing to wear, money in your pocket, that becomes an all-encompassing concern. An all-encompassing concern. How am I going to pay for this? How am I going to do this? HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'm going to give you Gashmius so that you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And if your Gashmi needs are taken care of, then absolutely then you could focus on the Ruchnius. This is why in Yiddishkeit, we've spoken about this many times, we are not an ascetic religion. We do not believe that the pathway to God is paved through swearing off everything material and physical and enjoyable, just the opposite. In Judaism, we believe, enjoy. Baruch put the stuff in here. So you want to make a lot of money? Make a lot of money. You want to live in a nice house? Live in a nice house. You want to drive a nice car? Drive a nice car. You, you can have whatever you want as long as you just realize that that's only there to give you a sense of physical security so that now you could do something with it. The problem, of course, becomes when people tr- see. So that that's how we view Gashmius. So, it, and I like your, I like your term of self care. In other words, by me knowing that I could pay my mortgage and I could pay my bills and I could go on a vacation, whatever level of Gashmius you want, or 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 I have a this or I have a that, great. I have a sense of security. And now that I have a sense of security, now I have the ability to focus on my Ruchnius as well unimpeded by material concerns. But again, the danger becomes then when people think, instead of realizing that Gashmius is just there to create security so as to allow me to fully focus on Ruchnius, people begin to take the Gashmius and make it the source of happiness. Now again, I just want to make one thing clear. It doesn't mean that a person is exempt from Ruchnius if they don't have the security of Gashmius. Right? This becomes a very, very important disorder as well. But at least conceptually, that's relationship. Yes? Hundred percent, especially if you find simcha in a chocolate bar, you are a very lucky young woman, right? That, that's, uh, uh, but no, uh, the truth is, you're hundred percent correct. By the way, we even see that in Novi. Remember again, we see multiple episodes. We found it by Shal Hamelach, one of the first times, right? That's when people wanted to experience prophecy. How would they experience prophecy? Music. Right, Kiruli Minagain. 
music, which is fascinating, which shows you that music is, music is a material thing. Granted, music has an ability to influence the neshama, but it's a perfect example, as what you're describing, of taking something gashmi and somehow using it just to create a sense of physical joy, which then goes ahead and leads into spiritual joy. By the way, you don't have to go so far, Kilimina game. We see this, where else do we see this? About using material things to create physical joy as a gateway to spiritual elation. Right, eating. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. Shabbos, we have shalosh seudos. Yomtiv, v'samachta bechagecha. By the way, how does a person fulfill the mitzvah v'samachta bechagecha? Right, so it's the famous Rambam. Come on, everybody knows this Rambam, right? So the Rambam writes, right? So men could have meat and wine and women have clothing and jewelry. Really? Clothing and jewelry? That's v'samachta bechagecha? Yeah. Yeah, because if you use something material as a gateway to the spiritual, that is a fundamental whole use of the material. All right, so what we're going to... So I, I, I tried to accomplish the entire source sheet. We didn't quite uh, get through it, but hopefully this, this simcha in the labor as well. We'll stop over here for today. We'll see Rabbi Nachman in Hashem on Wednesday, and we'll develop a more comprehensive definition of simcha as well. Is it short?